For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. I'm very happy to be celebrating the beginning of the Year of the Dragon with by hosting my Dharma sister, Anjan Galen Godwin. Galen is the abbot of the Houston Zen Center. I believe the largest, certainly one of the largest Suzuki Roshi lineage temples uh, east of California. Um, Galen is also uh, the, uh, I don't know if I'll get this title exactly right, Director of for Soto Zen in North America, which is a really important position. Galen has been uh, coordinating the American Soto Zen uh, presence with Japan and Japanese Soto Shu, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I don't know if that was your first trip to Japan, Galen, when you stayed with me in in Kyoto when I was living there in the early nineties. But Galen has been back to Japan many times since. So um, thank you very much, uh, Galen, for uh, joining us today to speak. Thank you. Thank you so much, my big brother, Taigen, Taigen Roshi. And thank you for inviting me. It's good to see all of you. Good to see you, Hogetsu. Congratulations on the upcoming celebrations that you guys are going through. But Taigen Roshi, thank you so much for reminding me about that trip to Japan, which I, I think about often. You you really were an important and remain an important conduit to all things Japanese. So that was a wonderful time. And today, actually Taigen Roshi has visited Houston Zen Center too both virtually and in person. So we're really grateful for all your books, all your teachings. And I'll say maybe a little bit more about that as I talk today. But what I I want to talk about today is um, something I've been involved in now for a year with our Japanese uh, brothers and sisters, which is honoring Keizan Zenji. So, uh, how many of you have heard of Keizan Zenji? Everybody knows about him. Most everybody knows about him. And this year is an important year from April last, in 2023, to April this year. We've been spending a year of preparatory celebrations for the big ceremonies, which happen in April this year, honoring the 700th year after Keizan Zenji's death. So it's been very interesting for me and very interesting for a lot of people in Japan to learn more about um, the importance of Keizan Zenji. We, we honor and celebrate Dogen Zenji, who was three generations before Keizan. So if it's okay, I really want to tell you more about Keizan Zenji and why he's important for us in North America. So uh, earlier this year, in January, I went back to Japan for 
uh, New Year's greetings. So for all people, the New Year is important. And Japanese people really acknowledge the importance of New Year's, of endings, beginnings, the turn of the year, the return of the light, and so on. And so uh, several of us visited the head temples, and we got to pay our respects to the two Zenjis. So there's a um, Minamizawa is the current Zenji of Eheji, and Ishizuki Roshi is the Zenji of Sojiji. And those are the two head temples, and they, they share responsibility for Soto Zen in Japan. And when we visited Sojiji, founded by Keizan Zenji, um, the Zenjis of these two head temples are wonderful people and very dedicated practitioners, very refined practitioners of the way. And Ishikawa Zenji said that when he came to the United States last year for the 100th anniversary at Senshuji, he realized that Americans really don't know very much about Keizan Zenji. And it was, you could see how important it was because in Japan, Keizan Zenji is equally important. Dogen Zenji and Keizan Zenji are equally important. So it was a learning for them to see that we don't know in general, generalization, we don't know as much about Keizan Zenji. And so he was glad that he came to the United States and he's glad that we've had this year of celebration so we can uh, all together learn something about each other and honor Keizan. So Keizan lived in medieval Japan from 1268 to 1325. So he's a, he did not meet if he lived from 1268. Dogen Zenji died in 1253. So he was a couple generations after Dogen Zenji, but uh, Eheji was going strong. And so he was a monk at Eheji. But he didn't start off his Buddhist practice at Eheji. He grew up in a Buddhist family, um, which was very immersed in local deities and cults. So he had a different kind of uh, upbringing than Dogen Zenji, who grew up probably in a more, um, uh, what would you call it, aristocratic family. But for Keizan Zenji, whose mother was a Buddhist and, a, and an abbess at a Buddhist monastery, not a, not a Zen monastery, Kanon was incredibly important. Kanon was very important to his mother, and she credited Kanon with the birth of Keizan. So Keizan um, lived in two worlds, in the world of ultimate reality, but we'll also say in that world were the forces of Kanon, the forces of spirits, um, the power of mountains, power of local um, spirit animals, and conventional reality of founding and maintaining a monastic practice center, of caring for people, training monks. So he lived in this world of continuous practice, of lotus blossoms turning lotus blossoms, but he also lived in a world that was changing and a world of beginnings, endings, times of transition, times of change. 
So he was a true Soto Zen monk, a disciple of Dogen Zenji, but he also really always maintained his allegiance to Hakuzan, as Taigen-san knows, Hakuzan, the mountain of, uh, of, of, of uh, spiritual power. So he was also guided by his dreams and reading about the dreams and the, the, the uh, developments that came from his dreams is a little, is very moving actually. Um, so in our world and in Japan, in the world, Dogen Zenji is recognized and honored and incredibly valued for bringing Zazen and our Soto Zen way from China to Japan. And then we're so lucky that Shinryu Suzuki came from Japan to the U.S., along with other teachers, bringing Zazen to all of us. But Keizan brought something, too. Some people say Dogen Zenji is the father of Soto Zen, and Keizan Zenji is the mother, which is kind of an interesting analogy. And Dogen Zenji's final monastery, AAG, this cold, high, remote mountain, Zen, mountain uh, monastery, how did the practice that was... Um, cultivated there, come down from the mountains to the rest of Japan? How did it come from that temple to the temple where ultimately Suzuki Roshi was born? How did it get from there, from this remote, very um, dedicated practice to everybody in Japan? So one of the links to that is Keizan. How did it get from the remote mountains of Eiji? To the rest of the Japan, to the rest of Japan, and then to the United States and Chicago and Houston. Keizan is one of the really important links. So he, Keizan Zenji, is given the credit for founding temples across Japan and making this very rigorous practice available to everyone and allowing it to grow. So, of course, no single person is responsible for that, for the success of any endeavor. But a lot of the gratitude and praise is wrapped around Keizan Zenji. Because there really is in him, in his story, the turning toward creativity, allowing the Dharma to reach, as he would say, ordinary people, not just home leavers and monks, and to merge with when other temples were founded in Japan to merge with the local practices, the tutelary deities at those places. So again, Keizan had practiced extensively in Japan and experienced different practices in temples that weren't Soto Zen. He was familiar with local practices and I was musing on it. And when we today are open to other elements of Buddhist practice, for example, the Pasana teachings, uh, uh, Tibetan teachings, this can be seen as a link to the style of openness of Keizan's temples. So when a new temple in Japan would become a Soto Zen temple, the local practices, the local important devas were acknowledged and brought into the world of continuous practice. Keizan and women. So I have often said that I am proud or aware and grateful or something that Shakyamuni Buddha, Shakyamuni as a, as a historical person, accepted women and recognized women. 
And I'm proud that Dogen's NG recognized and ordained women. Dogen welcomed women to his monasteries and spoke about the total equality of women, especially in Raihai Tokusui. He proclaimed the total equality of all people. So it, it was unusual at the time. Dogen supported women, denounced the oppression of women, and dismissed notions that women were a distraction to men. Dogen said, it's better to appoint a, des- a deserving woman rather than unqualified men. He de- denounced men who refused to bow to women, calling them arrogant and ignorant. His words strongly contradict what other Zen teachers of his time were saying. Even Esai denounced women. And Dogen's words were not just empty words. He had women disciples and at least one female Dharma heir. He trained women, and Kazan also trained women, and had at least two women Dharma heirs. So Kazan again was the same, and um, and uh, also uh, proclaimed the equality of all people in Japan at that time. Uh, I, the society was pretty hierarchical, and there was a class of people called hinen who were basically assigned to do the tasks that no one else would want to do or uh, would ever do. So essentially an untouchable class. And Keizan uh, Zenji uh, welcomed hinen into the community and proclaimed the equality of everyone. And in both cases, Dogen and Keizan there were limits to how far they would go in their lifetimes, but the seed they planted has been uh, has created a forest of possibility for us, and we can touch that possibility and continue to actualize it. Kazan, two generations after Dogen, three generations, went further than Dogen, according to the historical record. And in fact, Kazan's mother, Ekan, Again, as I said earlier, preceded him on the path. She left the family when uh, Kazan was eight years old for practice, and she served as an abbess at a temple. She watched out for her son, though, and prayed for him and devoted her, uh, devote, devoted her practice to him. She had been a practitioner at Dogen Zenji's at Eheji under Gikai, actually. From the time of eight, though, or before that, up till the time of eight, he was raised by his paternal... Is there background noise? Is it very bad? I'm so sorry. Let me see what I can do. made an offering to the God of Silence. So uh, back to Kazan's mother. So uh, his grandmother, who raised him after his mother went off to practice, had also been one of Dogen Zenji's disciples and remained profoundly significant in Kazan's life. 
Kazan did train at AHG, um, but he left during a dispute after a, after Dogen Zenji died. Um, there was much disagreement about the succession, and I'm going to talk about succession in a little bit. But there was much disagreement about the direction that AHG was taking. So Kazan Zenji and his teacher Gikai were. Um, Gikai was sent out of AHG, but Kazan left and went to the Noto Peninsula, to the south part of the Noto Peninsula. And probably a lot of you heard about the giant earthquake that happened on January 1st in Japan at the Noto on the Noto Peninsula. And the original Sojiji was damaged extensively during that uh, earthquake, which has become significant this year because a lot of effort was put into rebuilding, so repairing and renovating Sojiji in time for this memorial, and it was heavily damaged. But that's where uh, Kazan went and set up a temple in the southern part of the Noto Peninsula called Yokoji. At that temple, he welcomed women practitioners, all people, Hinin people. And this temple, I want to tell you a dream of Kazan's, one of the very formative dreams. He went to stay with a, a benefactor. One of the importance of one of the most important things about Kazan's NG is he recognized the real importance of benefactors and honored them, dedicated temple activity to them and realized that without our benefactors, we can't maintain our monasteries. This is one of the disagreements that was active at AHG. AHG wasn't able to take care of its supporters. So Kazan was staying with a supporter who would eventually become his Dharma successor. During the night, this is Kazan, during the night I spent in the home of my benefactors, I dreamed that I went to sit on the summit of the mountain and looked way down to the base. Between the high peak and the deep valley, the interval was that which separates heaven from earth. In a court in the hollow, a monastery suddenly appeared. Many buildings, their rooftops aligned, filled the whole valley. On the right, in front of the monastery gate, was a great enoki tree with burgeoning branches. Pilgrims came from all quarters and hung their straw sandals on it, meaning they decided to stay. When I interpreted this dream, it became clear to me that if I settled in this place, monks would come from the four cardinal directions to repay here the price of their sandals. This is the sign that it was an extraordinary sight. Based on that dream, he built, he raised money and built the monastery. So one of his earliest disciples was that donor who became Mokufu Sonin, his uh, woman disciple who was very important to him. And again, she started as a donor funding part of this building. And later he ordained her saying that in a dream, he had seen that she was the incarnation of his beloved grandmother. He also ordained Sonin's mother, and he would go on to establish to found the very first Soto Zen monastery specifically for women 
and appointed Sonin its first abbess. In another dream, Kazan was visited by Gien, and in this dream, Gien told him that he, Gien, had vowed to never leave his mountain. When he woke up, Kazan also vowed to never leave that mountain. So his dedication was legendary, his devotion to the continuation of Dogen Zenji's way. So Kazan did not write as much as Dogen, but there is a text called Denkoroku, Transmission of the Light, that I'm sure many of you know about. And it came from the 53 lectures that Kazan gave about the lineage of Soto Zen from Shakyamuni Buddha through India, through China, and then to Dogen Zenji and his disciple Koan Ejo. So the other, one of the other really important um, artifacts that Kazan Zenji has left us is a lineage and the importance of lineage. He was devoted to protecting the continuity established by Dogen Zenji. So each uh, story defined, uh, describes a relationship, a series of stories and a relationship selected by Keizan Zenji. So Dogen wrote about continuity and succession, and one of the radical insights or descriptions of Dogen is that the continuous practice of Shakyamuni Buddha is a circle. As each being wakes up and joins this circle, total equality among practitioners is realized. The document in Dharma Transmission that demonstrates this is basically a very large circle, a circle of names of everyone on the lineage. And then in Dharma Transmission, your name is placed in that circle, a circle of total equality. But this lineage also appears as a line on the Kechimiyaku, which we all receive in the mystical ceremony of Jukai. We receive the precepts, the same precepts in ordination. So both these documents, the circle, the shisho, and the kechimiyaku, have no beginning and no end. They are continuous. And they visibly demonstrate the teaching of complete equality with Buddha. So here's an example from the Denkoroku, the stories of the transmission of the light. And... Uh, see the, the, the emphasis on the connection between the visible and invisible worlds. The 38th ancestor was great master Dungshan Wupen. He visited Yunyan and asked, who can hear the non-sentient preach the Dharma? Yunyan answered, the non-sentient can hear the, the non-sentient preach the Dharma. The, mas the master asked, do you hear it? Union replied, if I could hear it, you would not be able to hear me preach the Dharma. The master said, in that case, I don't hear you preach the Dharma. Union said, if you still don't hear me preach the Dharma, how much less can you hear the non-sentient preach the Dharma? The master was greatly awakened at this point. So, Kazan pointed to this conversation as a turning point in Dungshan's long life of training and then he provided commentary on all the on all the elements. So this transmission and recognition is uh, important, and something I've been thinking about in our own temple, as in your temple. We study the issue of succession: what's the right time? What's the right method? 
who's the right person. I know it's an important issue for you in Chicago, and I'm so proud of you. All eyes in the Zen world are on you to make sure that you're well taken care of in the Dharma world. And But I was already going to talk about transitions before I knew about this big development in your world. So just listen with soft awareness. I'm not necessarily talking about you, or maybe I am, but I'm definitely talking about all of us in transition. Kazan really cared about transitions. He'd lived through the big upheaval at AHG. It's called the third generation split, much disharmony, disagreement about how to take care of Dogen Zenji's uh, uh, traditions. Um, but something has to be cared for during traditions, during, excuse me, during transitions. There are endings, there are beginnings. There is a continuous circle. There are endings, there are beginnings, and there's more. So it's not just about change. It's about evolving, about transition. There is a difference between change and transition. In a way, our practice has an ease with the idea of change because we hear about impermanence all the time. Things are impermanent moment after moment. But as the Buddha taught, there is also duration. There is the carrying through of strong karmic influences. Caring for what is carried through is also a part of our practice. One student of transition says that change is situational and transition is psychological. Impermanence is the immediacy of our actual lived experience of change. Transition is the psychological reality of how our body minds hold on and carry forward our experience. So all transitions are composed of three things, an ending, a neutral zone, and a new beginning. So this neutral zone is an area that we Zen people excel in, or we can excel in it. We understand how to be comfortable around not knowing, about ambiguity, about waiting before imposing a new um, shape on reality. And we all respect each other's psychologically unique karmic skills at stepping through transitions. Many places are going through such situations right now, times of surprising transition. I'm thinking of Berkeley Zen Center, going through an ending, facing a beginning, and trying to hold the neutral zone. So when we look back at our early history of Zen, it is absolutely packed with endings, beginnings, it's also the complete chain of unbroken continuous practice. And still, there is the lovely convention, the lovely conventional reality, the magnificence of our of the variety of things. Kazan is also honored for this, for being having his um, practice firmly established in the realm of the ultimate and the realm of the conventional, and not trying to diminish the distinction between the two. So to totally honor the ultimate doesn't mean that we undermine the value of the conventional and its variety. So Kazan was determined to protect the lineage of Soto Zen. He had, and this is an interesting thing, this gets into why uh, 
Soto Zen survived and why it has made it to the West. He had, he, he ordained many people, more than 200 probably. And he had eight main disciples, six men and two women. The two women were Mokofu Sonin and Konto Ekyu. As he prepared to die, he took care of the, um, the prominence of his temple, Yokoji, while he was alive. But as he prepared to die, he designated seven temples and appointed the heads from his main disciples. The women were appointed to the women's monastery. And within the group of seven, uh, a monk named Gasan Joseki stood at the very bottom. Keizan considered him the least um, important person among his disciples. And yet he's going to become the most important. So he stood at the very bottom, the least promising. So of the seven temples that Keizan appointed his disciples to, Gasan was the last one he appointed. And he just sent him north on the Noto Peninsula to this um, obscure prayer temple called Sojiji. So Gasan was appointed to a very modest temple. And when Keizan appointed him to it, he noted at the time, very discouragingly, that the patrons of this prayer hall lack faith. So you're going to a temple where the people are actually not even interested in maintaining the temple, a sign of its very low value. So it's not an auspicious beginning. And in 1324, Gasan became the abbot there. He was 48 years old, and he stayed for 40 years. And during that time, as scholars say, he became the link that connects Dogen Zenji to us today because he kept his temples alive. Um, he, it demonstrates, again, the surprises that take place in our practice, the unforeseeable things. Somehow, as Gasan developed disciples and sent them to all over Japan, somehow the temples that Gasan appointed people to withstood the challenges of that time, warfare, uh, social upheaval, calamity, um, and those temples remained. Again, they adapted to the practices of the time. They went to temples that hadn't necessarily been Soto Zen when they arrived and gradually um, transformed them into Soto Zen temples, keeping some of the elements of the previous practices. And the same Gasan, the same low expectation Gasan, had the most women disciples. And we have the names even of four of those women Dharma heirs who went on to become teachers. So as the scholar William Botiford says, Soto grew as a result of its openness to women. And this lasted until the Tokugawa, when the hierarchy of Tokugawa uh, heavily imposed on our whole school. And even though the school did not directly oppose, oppress women, it gave an opportunity to others who wished to do so. So after that time, women could no longer head the monasteries, which they could before, and their roles were uh, diminished. They couldn't officiate at major ceremonies. And that's now finally been reformed in our lifetime. So that's a little bit about who Kazan Zenji is and the forces that were set in motion by Dogen Zenji, strengthened and protected by Kazan, very profoundly protected by Gasan Joseki, 
are what has kept Soto Zen alive for a thousand years. After Gasan, Soto branched out in many directions, but for us to know, 98% of modern Soto is associated with so- Sojiji, the temple that Keizan Zenji sent Gasan to. Gasan had 25 disciples, and they are responsible for that 98% of the temples in Japan. Eheji is one temple. It has one branch temple in Japan. And yet, because of Eheji, which Shunryu Suzuki was associated with, most of the temples in America are associated with Eheji. So that's a little bit about our heritage from Keizan Zenji, Dogen Zenji, and our women's lineage. Thank you very much for being open to this information. Thank you very much, Kanjin. This is uh, important for us to know. And as you say, in, as we are approaching a, ma- a major transition in Chicago, this is uh, uh, a big part of our DNA. So uh, comments, questions for Kanjin, uh, for Galen, uh, please feel free. Maybe, Dylan, you can help ca- uh, call on people uh, in the room or someone else can do that, and, and also people uh, online, um, please feel free. Uh, we have time to uh, comment or ask questions for Galen. Okay, so. so Galen, thank you so much for being with us and sharing so much. Uh, so it's really beautiful to hear how women have been seen and uh, offered the Dharma. And still, when I received my Kachimiyaku and wrote out, the lineage and wrote out the circle of the Shisho. I'm the only female name on that list. That's probably true for you. So I, it's a question for me, how to relate to that. And I'd be curious to hear how, how that is for you to put you on the spot a little. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's, I like being on that spot. Hi, Ogetsu, it's so good to see you. I, um, people have been talking about that. Well, people have probably been talking about that for a long time, but, um, you know, the effort to create a, uh, a record of the women teachers and ancestors and these na- all the names that I just mentioned, Mokufu Sonin and Yoko Inkan and so on, they're on a, another parallel list and that has been drawn up and it's circular in shape. So there's a list of, of honored women, transhistorical women, as there are on, on the male list also, transhistorical figures. Uh, so it has women 
from India, China, and Japan, and America, I think also, Western, Western women. So there's a parallel list, and some people give that out at Jukai and Dharma Transmission also. So if you want a copy of that, I'm happy to give that to you. How do I feel about it? Um, not being, not having a lot of women's name on, on that list. Um, I think I'm, how do I feel about it? Somehow or other, it doesn't really bother me because it's um, a literary device. Um, so maybe somebody, someday somebody will have the, the spiritual authority to rewrite that list. Right now it feels rewriting that list, people have the urge to do it, but it feels a little too arbitrary. So I'm not sure if we're ever going to get to rewrite it. Hopefully the, here I'm now, I'm just free associating. If the women's lineage document takes on a parallel importance, that would be really good. So I give it out at Dharma Transmission and the name of the Dharma successor, male or female, is on both documents. So, and they're contained together in the same envelope. So something like that has been practiced by a lot of people these days. I can send you that. Happy to send it to you. Um, I hope that's, is that a good answer? It's like we, in our bodies, all of us on this, on this, in this room, this kind of room, all of us carry that tension in our bodies. That's part of what we carry. We carry the responsibility and the tension for this situation in our very own bodies. And how we behave toward each other and toward others is part of that, part of our responsibility. But can we resolve it in our own little body? We just have to join together to do the resolution. So thank you for bringing it up because denying it and ignoring it won't work. And then leaping toward a solution won't work. We're kind of in this ambiguous situation. I will say, you know, I am the only woman director in the Soto Zen hierarchy in the administrative body. And so they put me out there a lot because it's a bit, you know, it's tokenism. But it's also they're trying to show that they they don't want to do it the way they've always done it before. So they want to have women in positions of power and authority and so on. So I cooperate with that rather than point out point out um, a thousand years of misbehavior. Just to say that at Ancient Dragon, I also give out women's lineage in Jukai and transmission and. Um, one of my teachers, my Shuso teacher, was Zenke Blanche Hartman, even though she's not on my Kechimiyaku, but uh, Gail, and you were there, I believe, when I was uh, Shuso. And uh, I, I apologize now for giving you a hard time sometimes then. Um, I didn't want to come out of my Shuso cabin <laughs> once when Galen was trying to bring me out. So um, anyway, uh, Galen and I go back a long way. You were such a good shoe. So, do you remember when you led us out the out of the valley to those, uh, to the, what was it, those sand rocks or something? 
you led us on a great hike. You were really, really good, Chuso. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate your bring, you're bringing up the tension in all of this and the liminal space, the neutral space, which we are very much in at Ancient Dragon's Zen Gate now. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, an interesting uh, opportunity. And I'm so grateful to Hogetsu, who will continue things. So um, anyway, thank you for your, for your talk about Kazon. Just one other thing about Kazon. I really appreciate how much he uh, brought forth the, uh, the kami, the, the local uh, deities or whatever you want to call them, from the mount, from the from the local space, um, and uh, to me, it points to something fundamental about our tradition that it's very much earth based and based mm-hmm. on place and and the spaces that we uh, inhabit. So um, anyway, Kazan was really interesting in lots and lots of ways. So anyway, thank you for your talk. Other comments, questions, please for. Galen. Uh, Eve has a question in the room, and I think Hogetsu, you wanted to have a response to it. Look like. Um, good. My response is this. Thank you very much. Okay, Eve, go ahead. Cool. Um, yeah, I was interested to hear about Kazan's. Um, mother and her relationship to Kanahan, and I wondered if you could say more about that and what that meant to Kazan and his practice and teachings. Yeah, I was interested in that too. I hadn't realized that his mother, I knew he came from a, a religious family, but I hadn't realized that his mother was an abbess, and there, uh, I think uh, from what I've read, there is a little bit of um, tension, I guess is the word, on his part toward his mother. So he actually honored his grandmother more because she's the one who stayed to raise him. And his mother from far away in her monastery commissioned a large Kanon statue to be built. And then when she died, she gifted that to Kazan, and then he installed it at Yokoji. Um, so through the interme- intermediary of Kanon, she reached out to her son, and with his reliance on dreams, um, he he received her offerings. Seems a bit problematic relationship to me, but that's what we know about her. And again, his grandmother had been a, a student at Eheji. She practiced at Eheji under Gikai. Dogen Zenji's uh, 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 second generation student. The whole history of the family life, the descriptions of family life in medieval Japan and how people were behaving is is very interesting. Women, including his his benefactor, who became Mokufu Sonin when she was his patroness. Um, didn't they don't have family names she had the name of the house so she didn't receive a name until she received her her buddhist name um, very interesting very interesting 
and there's speculation. I'm not sure I agree with this. I, I have to do more research, but speculation that sometimes women would leave the family to go to monasteries, partly because of if they were widows, uh, for instance, you could keep your property. They had separate inheritance in Japan. Women could inherit property and so on. But if you remarried, your new spouse's children would then automatically receive all that property that you had held. So uh, speculation is that women went to monasteries so they wouldn't have to give up all their property. But I think they went to monasteries because they wanted to practice. But we can't we can't know all of these things since there aren't very many records by the women themselves. Beyond that, I, I right now don't know much more about uh, Kazan's mother. But was the mother's mother? So Eve's question is the grandmother was the mother's mother? No, the grandmother was his father's mother, actually. Huh. Paternal, grand, paternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. And we have a question from Paul. Hello, Galen. Hello, Paula. I wanted to ask, since Kazan ordained so many people and many women, he obviously was considered someone unorthodox, I would think, in the way he ascertained who should be ordained. So I wanted to ask you if you had any more information on, like, did he run his dreams? Did people have to ask? Did he solicit? I mean, do you know anything more about how he chose people for ordination, or did they choose? Yeah, that's so interesting. This is one of the main differences between ordination in all of Asia, including Japan, of course, and the West, especially America, which was true then, it's true today, and... uh, so the real significance comes in at the time of Dharma transmission. So getting ordained, receiving ordination in Asia back then is very easy. You just go, you hang your sandals up, you stay, you receive ordination. That's it. There, there is no discerning process. It's then if you stay, that becomes significant. So to be a, a novice priest in Asia is very easy. But then to stay and or to receive, go to the next level, become Shuso, and then receive Dharma transmission, and then eventually become named to lead a temple. Those are the steps. Um, those would be the significant thing. And that's where, so ordination, no problem. You're just ordained. And if you can stand it, you stay. But then to be acknowledged as a Dharma successor, that's where Kazan was was unusual. Um, he did rely on dreams for Dharma succession, for sure. It was in a dream that he uh, recognized that Mokufu Sonin was the reincarnation of his grandmother. That was came to him in a dream. Um, Soto Zen differs from other kinds of Buddhism in that uh, Dharma transmission doesn't happen upon proof of, of enlightenment. The, the, the connection between teacher and student is, is non-dual. It's not about um, 
an enlightenment experience that then you prove to the teacher. Other forms of Buddhism are like that. So that Kazan Zenji maintained the practice of, of or maintained the style of Ehe Dogen in that. It's this non-dual relationship rather than a Kinsho experience. And is that true, Taigen-san? Do you have more to say about that? Oh, I think I agree with what you just said, yes. Mm-hmm. So is that helpful, Paula? Yes, very much so. Thank you. Yeah. So we can take more time if people want to uh, have, a, have questions or comments uh, for Galen now. Um, so I have a question. I'm just interested in uh, the, I guess, the relationship or maybe not the tension, but or hopefully the harmony of Zen as uh, a, a practice that's up on a mountaintop and Zen as like a more populist, um, I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but like uh, a practice done by that that's integrated with the the marketplace and, 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 you know, part of everyday life. And um, I guess I'm feeling that currently of like, it, it, it feels like American Zen is trying to figure out how much we're, you know, how much we retreat and how much we go forth into, into the world um, and what the accent is, or if it's, or if it's completely, if they're, if they're both completely interdependent, and it sounded like from your talk that he accented more the the populist angle of it, um, did he say anything about that, or is was was that addressing a balance or addressing an imbalance from from his perspective, or um, was it uh, or or did he did he have more of a um, a lean towards Zen as being a, a more, a more um, an, an everyday practice, or it should be more of an everyday Yeah, that's a really good question, Dylan. There is that tension um, in Kazan, but in what you're saying also, it shows um, there is a, a streak of, of purity or allegiance to purity. There's that. And that's kind of represented by a little bit what was happening at, at AHG during Kazan's time. So there's this maintain the purity of the practice as it was practiced at that moment. We're going to maintain this. And then Kazan, you could really say, was more open to the variety of, of practice um, and appreciated the magnificent variety of practice. That is clear. Um, but that also takes the shape of, and in his, his writings too, but it's developed in our time, it's the individual nature of practice is respected. So in Kazan, that's manifested in, he really appreciated so-called um, supporters, donors, or the lay, the lay supporters. And in our way of thinking, those lay supporters aren't just not monks, therefore they're just not monks and they're not really practicing. 
the lay supporters are totally practicing and totally supporting the temple. And that part of it is something I really want to explore more because there is a slight feeling, maybe not in Chicago and certainly not in Houston, but in some temples and monasteries in the West where it's like, it should just be the monks and the kind of the supporters are over there and maybe they give us money, but it's like that. In, in the practice centers that are kind of like Kazan, they're, we're totally integrated together. And so how the monks practice is determined by circumstances and also how the supporters practice is determined by circumstances. And there's this, a tremendous variety. So I want to explore that more because sometimes I feel it's possible to undervalue the, the practice of, there's a tendency to undervalue the practice of one side or the other when, they're, when it's all part of the big picture, non-dual. Not just the the people, but the the plants and the mountains and the rivers are also practicing and supporting the temple. So I, I think you know this is the another dem- your question is another demonstration of how alive Zen is in the world, and how how much growth there still is going on and will go on as we answer these questions. And I, th- I hope all of you go around and visit temples in your area, in the Northeast, in the West, because it's really encouraging to see how different people are carrying this, this practice forward. It's just so beautiful. Does that, I know that doesn't answer it, but does that respond? It's exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. Okay. I would say that dynamic is echoed for our sangha in and in post pandemic or uh, semi post pandemic American Zen with a little bit of the tension between the people who managed to get to the our Lincoln Square Zendo and practice in person and all the people uh, online and uh, so it's something we're we're working on uh, how to um, honor both and integrate that and um, as well as the distant donors. So um, that's very, very relevant. Just one more thing I'd add about Kazan is that because he did spread um, Soto Zen in the countryside, or he was one of the main people, he wasn't the only person, but he and his successors, some of some of the people before him too, spread it um, beyond, you know, just the quote-unquote purity of Aheji. Uh, Soto Zen became the second most popular form of Buddhism in Japan. Um, and uh, I think Jodo Shinshu maybe has more uh, more uh, devotees and temples. But um, so uh, Keizan and his approach really uh, made a difference in terms of what Dylan was asking about how um, just everyday people, common people, uh, were integrated into Soto Zen. So anyway, thank you for everything you're offering, Gail. Oh, absolutely. It's so nice to see you all again. Someday I, I hope to see you in person. <laughs> <laughs>